Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. Sooner or later, we've all got to face the judge. Hopefully, it'll be that easy for us. Um, But the scripture says, there'll be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we cast out demons in your name? Did not we do this? Did not we do that in your name? In essence, we were at church a lot. We did a lot of religious things, didn't we? Aren't we? And you say, depart from me. I didn't know you. That, um, that great white throne judgment is going to be a stark reality, I'm afraid, for many folks. Um, it shows us, or will show us, and I think we're going to see tonight too, this side of him that is um, extremely just. He is just because he is totally holy. Uh, he, those two are inseparable. Because he is holy, he can't tolerate sin. Because he can't tolerate sin, he's got to be just against it. And that, that takes us to this, uh, this second expedition, or expedition here into cultural Christianity. In contrast with a very black and white gospel, I hope what you see tonight from these passages in Romans will, will help you see the stark contrast between our sin and God's goodness, his holiness, his justice, and how those things need a mediator, need somebody to... Step in between, and you see where we're going with that. Turn to Romans chapter 3, and we'll first look at, at uh, this black and white gospel in light of the black hole of our sin and the fact that it is all-consuming or will be all-consuming if nothing's done about it. He speaks to that, uh, that condition of ours here in Romans three twenty-one, and the verses following. You join along with me. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which... The law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance had He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, three things I want us to see out of this black hole of sin and where it takes us. First of all, verse 23 speaks of this. We're accountable. Look at what it says. For all have sinned. All means all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is no matter our background, no matter our upbringing, no matter our stance, no matter our position, no matter our vocation. We could come from a Christian home and be very, very lost and be a sinner. We can come from a church background, be churched all our life and be very, very lost, be in sin before him. We can, we can teach Sunday school class. We can, we can work with children. We can do whatever. We can serve him in any way, capacity possible. We can go on a mission field for him and be lost. He's saying these verses that, that we're all accountable and all means all. Um, we are, in essence here, he's, he's saying, all bound for a place called hell. Um, and sin, for all of us, turn to Matthew chapter 5. This won't be on the screen, so uh, if you can get to where you can see a Bible, if you don't have one, this will kind of explain what I'm about to describe to you. All of our sin has origins in our mind. And this passage in Matthew 5 speaks to that and speaks to the fact that um, regardless of, of who we are, what our 
what our human condition is. All of us are sinners, um, that there are no degrees of sin and, and those kinds of things. Be- let's begin in verse 21 of Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This is Jesus speaking now on the, on the, on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. But I'll tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So he equates anger with murder. See that? Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell fire. What is he saying? He's saying that the murderer and the person who is angry will suffer the same judgment. Why? Because all sin, and murder being included, begins in the mind. Why? Because that's how we're wired. We're wired from the, from the womb. Uh, and we, we looked at this several weeks ago in our, in our study of Romans and, and even in our study of Ephesians. I took us back to, to Genesis 3 where we saw that sin originated, all sin, even the, the very original sin in the garden, originated in the mind. It originated in the woman saying, is God really that smart listening to the serpent and saying, does he really know best or do we know best what's best for us? So all sin originates in the mind and, and we are... Uh, we're powerless, basically, to do anything about it. Look, at, uh, look back in, in verse 9. We're, we're still here in chapter 3 of Romans. Look back in verse 9 and look at these verses following. Um, what shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We've already been made, uh, already made the charge of Jews and Gentiles are all alike under the power of sin, as it is written. Watch this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's pretty stark, isn't it? You know who he's describing? You and me. You and me. Um, what he's saying in these verses, he's painting, he's painting a picture, and I'm I'm trying to vividly help you paint it as well to see the darkness and blackness of our sin. To see that we are utterly unsavable, utterly unredeemable. In fact, not even worth his redemption, our sin is. And it doesn't matter whether you're like me and you trusted Christ as a, as a nine-year-old kid. And up to age nine, I mean, how much can you get into? It doesn't matter whether, whether our sin previous before coming to Christ was, was, was vivid and stark, or whether it was mild and easy and tame compared to this world's standards. We are still sinners, and God looks at all of our sin the same. Consequently, we, we have no hope apart from him. Secondly, not only are we all accountable, we all need payment. Look at the first part of verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. This word atonement literally means payment. That when, when one atones for somebody's sins, they pay the price for those sins, whatever they are. Um, you've probably seen the movie A National Treasure, many of you, with, with Nicolas Cage. And at the end of the movie, they've, they've gone underground here at the Trinity Church and they've discovered all this, this treasure trove that's, un, that's deep underground and they come back up and he's talking with the FBI agent there in front of the church. And, you know, they've, they've made a great discovery for the benefit of the world and themselves and everybody else. And he's being commended for that, but the FBI agent reminds Nicolas Cage that somebody's got to go to prison. And Nicholas Cage says, well, I'd really not like to go to prison. He said, well, somebody's got to go, go to prison. Somebody's got to pay for stealing the Declaration of Independence. That's not something that you can just walk in and do. He says, well, I think I can help you with that, and points him, as you know, to his adversary, the whole movie. But that's the, that's the case of us. 
we, somebody's got to pay for your sins and for my sins. We're all accountable for those, and all of those require payment. Each of our sin requires payment, whether it's, as I said, a sin done in innocence as we were a kid or a sin done willfully as an adult. There's got to be payment for our sin. Uh, all of that is, is, I think, spelled out in these verses. And one thing I think these verses spell out, too, that are clear, and that is this, though we are all sinners... And though there's payment required for our sin, it totally takes out of the equation the scales that you and I have in our mind that we often grow up with of goodness versus badness. And if the good outweighs the bad, we'll certainly get into heaven, won't we? God will certainly be favorable to us, won't he? If the good out, isn't that the goal of life, that the good outweigh the bad? Well, we should do good, and the Scripture points us to, to, to the need and the, God's desire for us to do that. But he says in these verses that we just read here in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, there's not anybody good. There's none good, these verses says. Even on our best day, we're, we're not good because good is compared to him, not compared to everybody else. So, and many, uh, sadly, still in our day and time, many, many churched people who have been to Bible study and who have been to church all their life and tried to study God's Word and hear it preached and taught still have this scale in their mind of, well, if the goodness outweighs the bad, isn't that good enough? I mean, isn't that okay? I mean, do, do, do I not get something for effort? Do I not get some kind of grade for effort? And he looks at our sin and says, it's all bad and it's all dark and it all requires payment. There is no good scale because of that. Why? <laughs> because he is completely, and we'll see this a little more in just a second, he is completely and totally intolerant of sin. As a just God, he can't tolerate sin, can't even look on it um, as a just and holy God. Thirdly, in this black hole, we all face judgment. Look at the latter part of verse 25 and in the first part of 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance or in his patience, he had left, had he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So it is to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in him. There's a lot of use of the word just to justify in these verses. What does he mean by that? He means that before our sin can, can be forgiven, there's got to be a payment, there's got to be atonement, and somebody's got to pay. Um, many would say, and rightfully so, isn't he a God of love? Um, God is a God of love, is he not? He absolutely is. But he's also, well, in fact, turn to John if you need to. Uh, you memorize John 3.16, but what I want you to see are the verses after John 3.16. John 3.16 is this great love verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's read on. Let's look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned because already they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth come into the light so that what may be seen plainly uh, that they have done and been, or what they have been and done in the sight of God. Yes, he is a God of love, but he is also in these verses following a God of justice, a God who must look at sin darkly and, and requires some payment for it. Um, is that unfair? Well, the best way I can describe this to you is, is it unfair for a parent to punish their child when they get out of line? No. 
We do that for their own good. We do that not only to correct their behavior, but we do that so that down the road they don't make the same mistakes. Down the road they don't think that life is all about them. Down the road that they don't lose the structure and guidelines by which they need to live life and, and, and have some set of rules and some, some sense of right and wrong, some sense of accountability. We do that as parents because we love them. We tan their hind ends or, or turn them in the, put them in the timeout or whatever we do. We, we correct the behavior because we love them. So the behavior of justice requires some payment for their behavior. But the motive of justice is love. You see that? And that's how, he, that's how I would describe this, this passage in John 3 to say, yes, he is a God of love. But it's because, in fact, that he loves us so much that he has to be just on our sin, that he can't turn and look the other way. It's because of this love. Now, thankfully, we're not left in the black hole. Turn to Romans 5. We're going to look at Romans 5 and see where the light comes on. But we're not left in this black hole. There is, there is provision made. As God looks on, on us, he, he came up with a plan even before creation that he knew we would need redemption. He knew we would need atonement. He knew we would need payment. He knew that nothing would suffice other than his son and sends his son in the in David Platt's book, The Radical, he's in, in, in Indonesia and he describes a conversation he's having after a, a, a service in a temple, in a Buddhist temple. He's having a conversation with a, <clears throat> with a Buddhist leader and with a Muslim leader and they're talking about various elements of faith. And the conversation goes something along the nature of, you know, we're more alike than we are different. We all see God in different ways in our different faiths, but we're more alike than we are different. In fact, we're all trying to get to God in some way, aren't we? And David asked these, these two leaders, this Buddhist leader and Muslim leader, a question that says, okay, if I understand it right, you're seeing God up on a mountain, and we're down here at the foot of the mountain, and all of us are trying to get up to God on the mountain in our own way, correct? Yes, that's exactly correct. That's, that's exactly the way we're seeing it. That's, you're getting it. You're understanding what we're trying to say. And he said, <clears throat> wouldn't it be neat if God could come down from the mountain meet us rather than our striving to get to him. Wouldn't that be a neat? Oh yeah, man, it would be neat. He goes on to say, let me tell you about Jesus because that's what happened. God's coming down the mountain to meet us, to be among us, to be with us, to show us God in the flesh to say, you can live this life. You can walk with me. You can walk even in abundance with me here, but only if your sins are forgiven and only if you have a relationship with me. And he goes on, he, of course he doesn't lead either, either the Buddhist or Muslim leader to Christ that day, but he leaves them with the thought that God has come down from the mountain in the form of Jesus. Now, what are you going to do with him? We have to do something with this Jesus that he sent to us. That's where we change gears here in Romans 5 when the light comes on. Let's look at this, uh, this text here in verses 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Firstly, when the light comes on, there is a substitute for our accountability. As we looked at earlier in this black hole, we're all ultimately accountable. Now in Jesus, 
There is a great substitute and an appropriate and the only appropriate substitute for our accountability. This, this term um, in verse, in verse 6 um, and again in verse 8, in verse 6 we were still powerless. In essence, you have tried your best. You have, you've, you, you've, you've striven to, to, to be the best you, you can possibly be, and on your best day you're still powerless. In verse, uh, in verse 8 he speaks that while we were still Sinners. In essence, you've tried to, to, to get around your sin by good behavior. You've tried every way in the world to, 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 for your sin to be nullified and to be forgotten, to be done away with, but you're still sinners. We're still powerless. We're still sinners. This idea that we can't save ourselves. We are, we are utterly lost, and our sin is, is utterly black and utterly dark. But there's a worthy sacrifice. There's a worthy substitute found. Um, I remember the first time I felt that way. Maybe... You've, you've experienced this before. If you've experienced salvation, you've experienced this before. But I remember the first time I felt this way, having a worthy substitute when I knew I was accountable, is when I was a kid, we, after church, would occasionally go to a cafeteria called Byerly's Cafeteria. And we would <clears throat> go there for lunch after church. Our family would. And, and most of the time, my dad would either get in the front of the line or the back of the line. He knew the, he knew the cashier and knew most of the folks. And he would either get in the front of the line or the back of the line. This day, I wanted to be the first, so I got in front of him. He was in the front of the line. I got my tray, went around in front of him. I said, Dad, can I go? He said, sure. Go ahead. So much to, to my dismay, there was a new cashier in place who didn't know me, didn't know my family, didn't know my dad, didn't know anybody. And so I've gone through and I've picked out the things that I want to get. And I'm pushing my tray. And I'm probably, I don't know, eight, nine years old at the, at the max, maybe ten. <clears throat> And I'm pushing my tray through the line. I've got up to the line, and I look up at her, and, and uh, she says, well, that'll be whatever she said, $6.73. So I don't know what she said, but that'll be, and I'm, you know, here I am, and I'm thinking, somebody's always got this before. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, am I, I'm actually supposed to pay, and my dad's still a ways back. And so I'm scared to death, and I'm starting digging through my pockets. I realize I'm accountable for the food on my tray. For the very first time in my life, I realize I'm accountable for the food on my tray, and I'm supposed to pay for it. So I'm digging my pockets, see if there's any change. And just at that time, my dad comes up, puts his hand on my shoulder, and says, I got this, son. And that's the very first time I felt substitutionary atonement, substituting for my accountability. First time I ever, <clears throat> ever remember feeling that. Maybe you have a similar experience as a child, but he comes up and says, I got this. I was no longer accountable. He took my accountability on himself to pay for my lunch, to pay for my meal. He says in this verse that that's very much like what Jesus has done, being the substitution, the substitution account, the accountability substitute for you and I. And um, man, what, a, what an incredible redemptive thought that is, that you and I are utterly, we're there with empty pockets and no ability to pay for our sin whatsoever. And God is just, and somebody's got to pay. Just like he told Ben, somebody's going to prison, Ben, in the National Treasure. Somebody's got to pay. And we're there with empty pockets, and our Lord walks up and says, I got this. You're okay. I got this. Secondly, though, not only is there a substitute, there is blood for our payment. There is payment required when we're in the black hole, and his blood, we just sung about that, is the payment. That's what he speaks to in verse 9. Since we have been now justified, how? By his blood, how much more shall we be saved through God's wrath um, or from God's wrath through him? 
His blood is the only sufficient payment. That's what he's talking about when he uses this word justification. It is justification literally means being made right, being made whole, being put back together. And so he says, my blood is is the payment for your being made right, for your being made whole, for your being spiritually put back together and redeemed. Um, There is a lot of thought that goes around this scene of the cross of... um, of the father turning his back on his son. You, 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 you remember the story. We went over that here uh, some time ago. You remember the story when, when it went dark for three hours, and it's from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. in the afternoon when the sun is usually its brightest. It went totally dark, so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Jesus was on the cross. And many believe the father had turned his back on his son because of the cruelty of the treatment that was given him by the Romans the sentence of his death, the beating, the fact that those were someone else was treating his son that way. I don't really believe that. I believe God turned his back on his son because he couldn't look on your sin. He couldn't look at your sin. He couldn't look at my sin. And he turned his back on his son. It went dark for three hours because of that. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he became, he who knew no sin became sin. In essence, he absorbed all our sin. He didn't just carry it to the cross in a bucket. He didn't carry it in a, in a briefcase. He didn't carry it in anything. He bore it. He was it. He became all of our sin. And so his father, his, own, his very own father, turned his back on him. Why, why do you think Jesus was praying uh, in the garden the night before? And when he was praying, it says that he was sweating drops of blood. His prayer was so intense. Let this cup pass from me. What cup do you think he was talking about? Was he talking about the cup of his own death, the cup of his beating, the cup of all of that. That may, 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 may be how you choose to look at it. I believe the, what he was looking at was the cup of God's wrath. He knew, his, he knew his father was just, and he knew there had to be a payment for sin, and he knew the payment was him. It wasn't even his death in the sense that it was an event. He knew the payment was him. It was personally him. And his father would turn his back on him because of the wrath against sin that a just God looks at our sin, looks at the darkness of our sin, and his only payment for that is wrath. Um, I believe that's why he was, he was sweating drops of blood because he knew the wrath of his father was coming on the sin that he was about to bear for all of us. A pastor put it this way, and I think it's very descriptive. If you can, can imagine in your mind's eye a dam 10,000 feet high, 10,000 feet wide, holding back a wall of water. And you're standing 200 yards away from that dam, and it breaks. And this wall of water, 10,000 feet wide and 10,000 feet high, is coming at you. And about five feet before it gets to you, the ground opens up and swallows every bit of it, every last drop. That's this cup. That's the wall of God's wrath coming at you and Jesus swallowing every bit of it up. Every bit of it up. You and I deserved it. (laughs) We deserve our own wrath. We deserve our own punishment before the Lord, not him. And so he takes upon himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, he becomes sin. He doesn't just bear sin, yes, but he became sin for us. Took our sin on himself, became the payment himself for our sin. That was required. Why? Because we serve a God who is ultimately loving, John three sixteen, but is ultimately just, John three nineteen, and cannot bear to look at sin. Thirdly, there's redemption in place of wrath. Look at verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, 
You see that? If while we were God's enemies, you and I were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Whenever you see the term reconciled in Scripture, it means to be made right, to be whole, to be brought together. He was the reconciliation for us, and we're made right with the Father because of what Jesus the Son did. Um, this idea of being saved through this life, that phrase there in verse 10, uh, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? In essence, his death was not all about our eternity. Yes, it was, but it was all about having you and I understand that we today, standing here before each other and before him, have been redeemed. That our redemption isn't just borrowed time until we get to heaven. Our redemption is here and now, and it's to be lived here and now. We, we need to live as the redeemed. Live as the one who has been sub, sub, substituted for. Live as if someone has walked up next to us in the cafeteria line and said, I got this. I've got it. Don't worry about it. That's what redemption does for us. It takes us into a substituted place where Jesus becomes the payment for our sin and once was enough. Um, if there's ever any doubt about that, just look at the description of Christ. You'll see that once was enough in, in his father turning his back on him and on our sin. What I want you to do, or what I want this teaching tonight to do, and I hope, it, I hope the Spirit has already done that, is to give you a picture of what and where you would be without him, without knowing him, without a relationship with him. What would you be? Where would you be? What would your life look like apart from him? I hope as you think about that, the gratitude of who told you about Jesus comes into your, comes into your mind, of, whether it's a parent or a pastor or a friend, a coach or whatever. I hope the gratitude comes to your mind of who told you about Jesus and who pointed you to him in the first place. But I also hope that gratitude is transferred to him. You see, he is the redeemer. He is the substitute. He is the payment. He is the atonement. His blood paid the price for all of our sin, all of the wrath of God being swallowed up in this cup of Jesus that he drank on our behalf. But it's, a, it's hard to see the significance of that until we see the blackness and darkness of our sin and until we see where we would be if we were still in our sin, unredeemed. Um, I don't like to think about that. I don't know whether you do or not. I don't like to think about that. Now, though I was saved as, as a young boy, I think back on life about on opportunities I've had to walk away from him and have been very close in many situations, but didn't because of the Holy Spirit in me saying, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. Why do you want to head over there? Why do you want to go do that? Why do you want to? That's not who you are. And as a young boy, as a teenage boy, as a young man, as a 53-year-old old codger standing in front of you, I still get that same message of, that's not who you are. Heading in that direction, thinking that thought, uh, letting this, that's not who you are. This is who you are. I've redeemed you. You belong to me. I've purchased you. I've stood in line. I've paid your bill at the cafe. I'm, I'm, you belong to me. You're mine. You're my possession. You and I need to be reminded of that regularly. If you know him, <clears throat> what I want you to see is, and this is, <clears throat> this is the antithesis of cultural Christianity. To know how, how deep and dark your sin is, how, how vengeful the wrath of God is in his punishment. Look at, the, and we'll, we'll do this at some point. At some point, I'm going I'm to go through the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you what God's wrath really looks like. 
and, and in fact, on his own people, seemingly sometimes, but certainly on his on, on the enemies of the nation of Israel. I mean, God's wrath is a severe. In fact, Revelation is a clear picture of God's wrath. God's wrath is a severe thing, and we've been delivered from it through, through Jesus. We've been delivered from having to face it through Him. Um, as I say, uh, we're not going to look like Judd as we stand before the judge most of the time. But boy, what a, what a woeful and, and yet rejoicing time that's going to be woeful for those who experience his wrath and are cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and redemptive for those of us who know him, who don't deserve to know him, but who know him and who have relationship with him. Why is all this relevant? It's because I really believe <clears throat> we need to stop painting a neat and easy picture of the gospel. Why? Because it's neither neat nor easy. It's neither of those things. It's, it's ruinous. It's, it's violent. It's, um, it's all of that and more. I wish I could paint a, a, a I wish I could, could, could sweep through and let you see. I, as, as good a job as Mel Gibson did in The Passion of the Christ, I don't think it touched the surface of, of, of the, 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 uh, Boy, just the, the, the utter, you fill in your own blank. I, I, I'm, I'm without words in trying to describe what that is and, and why the gospel should be such a significant message to you and I, why, why we should cherish it more than we, than we often do. Um, boy, it's, it's, it's not neat and easy. And, and when we present it in a neat and easy way, I think we do it and him such a great injustice. When we present, you know, come to Jesus and be, accept him as your Savior and be saved from your sin. Is any of that untrue? No. All of that's true. But I think in just telling people half of the story, we do such a great injustice to the, to the work of redemption and, and, the, and the, the payment and the atonement and, and all of our sin as running from the wrath of God. Otherwise, we'd have to face it. I think we do such a great injustice in telling people, this is not an easy gospel. And salvation is not easy. Praying to him to invite him into your heart today is easy. But living that gospel out in the culture that you and I live in is not an easy thing. It takes someone who, who understands when they get up in the morning, I've been redeemed. And I don't deserve to be redeemed. But I have been redeemed. There is a substitute for me. I'm not walking my own walk. I'm walking his. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even thinking my own thoughts I'm thinking his. There's been a substitute. There's been someone put in the place of the one who has to pay for me. I've been redeemed. And I don't deserve that. If we paint a neat and easy gospel for this world, I think they see a neat and easy Jesus. They see a neat and easy faith, a need and need an easy life. And so when the enemy starts to attack them, what do I do? Now I'm toast. How do I come against the enemy? How do I deal with his attacks? How do I deal with, with him coming against me and the only way to deal with it is to understand my redemption and to understand that he's the liar and the truth is in me in the form of the Holy Spirit that we receive at salvation. So as we paint an easy, a neat and easy picture for people, even in our churches, we do the gospel such a great injustice because it was violent redemption. I mean, it was violent redemption for us. But he declared us worthy of all of that. It's severe. It's costly, and I think we need to live it Live like it was severe. Live like it was costly. Um, it, 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 if this is true of you, if the gospel changed you, 
And if you know him, it changed you. If this is true of you, if the gospel changed you, then it ought to change your, not only your destiny and your destination, but your attitude, our speech, relationships, marriages, money, vocation. It ought to change every arena of our life to the sense that the gospel is one, is one of the central things we look at to make it through each day. Apart from it, I'm, I'm hopeless. Apart from it, I'm facing the eternal 10,000 foot high, and I'm facing the wrath of God coming at me, and I deserve every bit of it. But Jesus opened up the ground and drank my cup of God's wrath. And I can, I can live because of him. I'm redeemed because of him. I'm atoned because of him. I've been paid for because of him. Um, you know, we tell people about the things that are precious to us and valuable to us, whether it's our kids or grandkids or, you know, whatever it is, some event, we vacation or whatever, some, some event that's been important to us. We, we tell people about the things that are precious to us, about the things we value most. I wonder how often the gospel enters your conversation or mine. I wonder how often we breach the subject matter of, and I say this often in the forms of telling his story and your story and how those two things mess together to tell a miracle, of how the, how, how the gospel changed you. And that change in you has brought about change to others. I'm going to tell you, God will use your story in a powerful way. He'll use his story in a powerful way. He's promised to bless his word. He's promised that the, that, that the gospel could go forth from kingdom to kingdom, nation to nation. He told the children, of, uh, uh, he told his followers there at the, at the ascension, go and make disciples. What is he saying? Go and share the gospel with people. Share what you've experienced. Share what you know. Tell the story to someone else. And there is power in that story of the gospel. Why? It's still changing lives today. We've become numb to it in America. But it's still changing lives today and still will if we'll tell it. But if we've got to bring people to church to see it, if they can't see it in us, they'll probably see a real neat and watered down and sanitized gospel when they get here. Well, I hope they don't hear. But when they get to a lot of churches, they'll probably see a real neat and sanitized Jesus that we need to clean up before we can come see and clean up our vocabulary before we can come talk to him and all those kind of things. And, boy, that's just not what the Scripture teaches. It teaches that the darkness and blackness of our sin is dark and black, but the, but the depth of God's redemption and the significance of his blood are powerful. They change us, and they ought to change our thoughts. They ought to change our conversation. They ought to change our relationships. If they do, God has promised to bless his word. He's promised to bless the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's promised to bless that story over and over and over again. Cultural Christianity looks at the gospel and and wants to sanitize it, wants it to be neat, and, and in fact wants it to be ecumenical in the sense that it's just another way to Jesus, or it's just another way to God. <laughs> it's the only way to him. He's come down from the mountain, and he says, I'm, I can get you up the mountain. In fact, I'll take you there with me, but you've got to know me. Boy, what a powerful story that is. I, it's hard for messages like this not to be a downer. And, and I don't, it's not my intention to leave you down. I hope I hope that in seeing the darkness and blackness of your sin that I've seen in my own self tonight, you can see incredible power in the redemptive blood of Jesus and leave with incredible gratitude on your heart that somebody else paid for me because my pockets are empty. (laughs) I can't pay. Somebody else has paid my price, and it's him, and I don't deserve it, and he deserves all that I have, all that I own, all that I am, every relationship I'm in. He deserves all of that because why? He's paid the price for me. Um, I hope you can leave with incredible gratitude. If you're here and you don't know him, I hope the gospel has come alive to you. I hope the Holy Spirit tonight has said to you, you know, you know a lot about God, but you don't know him personally. And if you want to know him personally, please 
Please see me after worship. I'd love to, to walk you through the scripture and tell you what just God's word says. Here's how to be saved. Here's how to know him. And then it, it begins to, to be real to you. It begins to be less sanitized, less neat, more, ah. And you start to have some spiritual aha moments that this is why that makes most, more sense. This is why. And you can only experience that through the Holy Spirit. You can only receive the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus. So I encourage you to follow him if you don't know him personally. I hope if you do, you leave with incredible gratitude of what he's done for you and the fact that what he's done for you um, needs to be told over and over again. We talked this past week in our small group why why our zeal uh, for him falls off you know, as we grow. When I was a nine-year-old boy and I accepted Jesus, I wanted to tell everybody I knew about it, didn't you? And I did for the most part. I went to school and I told all my friends and, and you know, there was, there was unabashed, unabashed unashamedness in my faith. You probably had that too. What happened? What happened? Oh, we grew up and got mortgages and bills and families and jobs. and That's what we need to revisit about the power of the gospel. It changed you to the extent that you didn't care who knew it. It came out of every crack of your life. That's what it needs to do in us. It needs to ooze out of every crack in our conversation, of our attitudes, of our the things we think about, the things we dwell on, I hope it does. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Cross Point Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.